Amen. Thank you all for worshiping with us to this point. We want to go into the worship of our God by our submission to his word. Would you take your Bible to Romans chapter 14? God has once and for all delivered to us his instruction for righteousness, that all of us might be completely equipped to good works. We study now a part of that word of instruction from Romans chapter 14, and I would invite you to look with me at verses 9 through 12. Romans chapter 14, and listen as I read from verse number 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. That verse serves both the verses before it and explains well the verses that follow as I read in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Every one of us in the room should confess new this morning. There's a time coming we will stand before the judgment of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Would you please be seated? And I'm going to dismiss children, and I'm going to come. I had a brother this week help me. I, I have been in the habit of dismissing a children's ministry that we haven't had in over a year and a half. Maybe you've noticed it. I've said something like, I'm dismissing children up to second or third grade. Well, you all probably have the ability to read. <laughs> children ages four and five can be dismissed. So thank you for not always following my wayward instructions. Um, and, and I appreciate friends who uh, appropriately correct me when I get things wrong like that. So the children will go to uh, children's church and uh, they'll go down this hall and you can pick them up at the end of the service. Uh, we are here in Romans chapter 14. And as we start today, <clears throat> I want to remind you that we've been talking the last couple of weeks about this subject of Christian liberty. We've been talking about things, we've picked up a couple of taboos that tend to exist in Christianity, the use of alcohol or playing cards. I might add to that uh, getting a tattoo. Or maybe a nose ring for some people feels like, oh, that feels like taboo. Um, I had someone mention to me this morning, very appropriately, what about, what about the way a family might talk about Santa Claus? Yeah. Um, oh, she mentioned another one that was really good. It's escaping me right now. Somewhere it's in her head. She's saying, say this but I don't see it right now. There are a number of taboos that Christians have. Of course, after a couple weeks ago wearing a short sleeve shirt to preach in, I have had several comments about my choice of attire today. So there, there is a reason behind this. It's not because I love ties. I'm not going to waste time explaining it to you, but it's also not because I feel guilty about not wearing a tie. Um, if you want to talk about my shirt and tie choice later, I'd be glad to fill you in on why this came out of my closet. We've been talking about a lot of things about the choices we make, what we think is good and what we think is not, what we think is 
prudent and what isn't, what's lawful, what's unlawful. However, we definitely get the sense that there is something more urgent than what the text describes as the food we choose to eat or the days we acknowledge as more holy than other days. There's something more than the calendar and the diet. And we we get that impression again today. We need to see the worship of Jesus Christ as we look in faith to the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, So here's what I mean. There is an issue of lordship, the lordship of Jesus Christ that is to be considered when you're thinking about the tattoo or when you're thinking about short sleeves or long sleeves. There is an issue much bigger than any of that issue of opinion. It's the lordship of Jesus Christ as evident at the cross, his death and resurrection, and our faith believing that we will stand before the judgment seat of God. So the title is, Give an Account of Ourselves to God. Giving account of ourselves to God. So Paul's burden at one level is certainly that the church get along. That is a burden. But there's another level. It's a theological level. It's a doctrinal level. We do want you to get along. I don't want you to fight about playing cards. But there's something so much more important than just getting along about your preference. At another level, we see the apostle saying things like, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. But then look at verse 3. So Romans 14, look at verse 3. He tells them not to judge the weak because God has welcomed him. That's the doctrine of justification. The brother who you're concerned about his behavior, the Bible says in this context, this particular situation, God's justified him. Look look at verse 4. Because he is justified, he will be upheld. The Lord will make him stand. That's the doctrine of perseverance. Whoever the Lord justifies, he keeps. Look at verse 6. There's a worship emphasis in your preferences If you're doing it, do it under the Lord. If you're not doing it, do it under the Lord. We're getting deeper and deeper into what matters most. And then verse 8. He reorients the issue about food and the calendar, holy days, and says this is life and death stuff. Wow. I mean, he takes this issue of our individual preferences and starts driving it into deeper and deeper realities of doctrine. And now today, in verses 9 and 11, for example, you find there a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ and the judgment seat of God. The cross of Jesus Christ and the judgment seat of God. This is Paul's, this is his heartbeat of theology. I want you to listen closely. What we're talking about is not playing cards and Santa Claus and tattoos and alcohol. That's not the issue. Those are the issues that become settled by the bigger issue. It's huge to Paul. It's the issue of worship. It's the issue of subjection to Jesus as king, his lordship. The absence of worship is the heart of idolatry. Here's how this text is going to help us so much. It's going to grow us so much. Because we tend to think in terms 
of the list of things I do not do. We sang about it a little bit ago. It's not in me. It's not the things I don't do. We tend to think about our righteousness in terms of things we don't do. But the thing we must do is worship. And to omit worship is the heart of idolatry. This is a huge issue for Paul. And it's an important issue for us this morning as we talk about our preferences. So on the higher plane, we are challenged with two questions I want to give us this morning. We have to ask ourselves if we understand the bigger issues. Because if we don't, we'll struggle with the small disagreement. But if we understand the bigger issue, it answers our individual question, our conscience question, our fellowship question, our unity question is answered with bigger questions than playing cards and sleeves. Let's ask the first question. Why Christ died for you? That's a big question. Why has Jesus, the Messiah, died for sinners? Verse 9. Now this seems, this seems like it's easy, right? Here's the problem. It might seem like Jesus died so that we wouldn't go to hell. The problem is, the covenant for Jesus to redeem sinners predates hell. So, so just imagine with me. Let's, let's try to inject our finite comprehension into the infinite. There is a day in eternity past where the triune Godhead communicates to each other and says, the son will be a substitute atoner for the unrighteous in order to save them from hell. Wait, save them from what? Right? That's, that's, my, that's my finite vocabulary. Of course, there was no absence of knowledge in the Godhead. But save them from what we think. We think that Jesus came along to be the solution to a hell problem. Jesus Christ is not the solution to a hell problem. Jesus Christ is the solution to Romans 1. And even though they knew God... They did not honor him. They did not worship him. They did not adore him. So God gave them up to their reprobate mind. Jesus goes to the cross not to save us from hell, but to return us to our purpose of worship. For to this end, listen to verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again. So that, here's what we, uh, we call a purpose clause. So that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. His death exalts him to the rightful position of king and the Lord of all those who are trusting in him. That he might be Lord. Now, this, this is clearly what Paul said in verse 8. So, Romans 14, verse 8. See back to verse 8? You can see the possession in verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. It's what's called a, 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 uh, it's a part of speech for the word master or Lord that says he possesses. Christ died to possess the living 
and the dead. In Romans 1, early on in the study of Romans, we read, this is concerning God's son who was declared in power to be Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to warn you pastorally about the mistake. It's not premeditated, it's just a mistake. Where we draw some sort of definitive line between Jesus Christ the Savior and Jesus Christ the Lord. There is no Lord without Savior, and there is no Savior without Lord. He has died for this reason, that he might be Lord Romans 1, verse 3, right away in the beginning of the book, Paul says, I want you to know what this is all about. This is all about declaring Jesus Christ our Lord. What does our confession of his lordship over us look like? It's described in Philippians 2. You can just listen. It's a passage you're probably familiar with. Therefore, God has exalted Jesus and placed on him a name that is above every other name. At his name, at the name of Jesus, every knee bows down. In heaven and on earth, and under the earth. His lordship's exclusive. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This has always been the plan. Always. There was not some, well, Jesus, get people out of hell plan. This has always been the plan. The exaltation of the Godhead to magnify how awesome our God is has always been the plan. Colossians 1, you can turn there if you'd like, but it is in your handout. I want to point out three areas where the Bible tells us that Jesus' preeminence is over three particular things. In Colossians chapter 1, you'll see the first one in verse 15, if, if you went there. If you have a handout, I, uh, I, I copied them in. In Colossians chapter 1, we read in verse 15 that Jesus is the preeminent of all creation. Everything that's been created, Jesus is over it. King of it, Lord of it. Then go down to verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Here we are sitting in this room. Those of us who are in fact redeemed, he is the head of us. He is Lord, he is king. Verse 21. And you, you, friend, who at one time had been hostile toward him, you had pretended like you had an unspoken rebellion, a coup. But now he's reconciled in his body of flesh, in his death, and made himself Lord of even you. You who had set out to lead your little spiritual rebellion against your creator. Once hostile, now reconciled. I wonder as we talk about the bigger issue, who is Jesus at the cross? I would invite you, you don't have to. I'm not going to try to fake it. I would invite you to say silently, speaking to your own soul, speaking to the place where your convictions come from, to say to your soul, Jesus does not exist for me. I exist for him. Why in a section on our opinions about small stuff, why does Paul push the conversation into Jesus the King? Why does this have to be added to a statement, stop arguing over small stuff, just get along? Because the problem is that works until we get confused about small stuff and big stuff. 
This, Jesus is king, keeps everything else where it belongs. Imagine a man raising his hands in worship of our king. And one of us comes along to fix him. Raising his hands in worship. I think it was my wife who pointed that out as one of them a couple weeks ago. She said, what about hand raising? Because maybe you've been to a church where, put your hand down. We don't do that here. This is not that church. Raise your hand, stand in your chair. Just don't hurt the person next to you. (laughs) But maybe someone is lifting their hands in worship to the Lord and we come along to correct them about hand raising or about something else. If we wouldn't judge another man's servant, we wouldn't judge another parent's child, and we wouldn't judge another boss's employee, why do we think we have the right to judge Jesus' worshiper? Because remember verse 6, would you look up Romans 14 verse 6? This is a worship issue. If they don't do it, do that to the Lord. If you do it, do it to the Lord. And we somehow feel like it's appropriate for us to come and say, ooh, you're worshiping your king in a way I don't think is okay. Christ died to be Lord of all, the living and the dead. When we step into that role of Lord over things that he hasn't delineated, We're forgetting why he died. We're forgetting that he has rightly claimed the title of king and lord. In Revelation, the Bible describes a day where there will be one who is worthy to handle the scroll. Think about the scroll as the deed to earth. Creation. The galaxies. There's one who's worthy to handle it and break its seal and open it. And his name is Jesus. When we start to insert ourselves as an authority over someone else's opinion, if we can't bring the authority, so we bring our authority into someone else's opinion, we are forgetting why Jesus died. And that is to be Lord of the living and the dead. Now, I really hope, it it is a real hope of my heart this morning, there are some people who have come to be with us, and you you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. I hope that there are some people who are with us today, because we love preaching about Jesus and singing about Jesus, and so I'd be happy if there were people in here who were saying, wait a minute, I didn't know that about Jesus. That would be, that'd be exciting for us. But I think maybe right now at this point in what I'm saying, some of those people would say, wait, isn't that what the church is always trying to do? Is change us in the way that we behave and in the things that we do? I mean, isn't that the very existence of the church just to try to change us? Listen very, very, very closely. This church, by God's grace, is never endeavoring, never setting out to change someone to us. 
But God has, in fact, given instruction. God has said that there are things that are wrong. He calls them an offense. He calls them a crime against his own holiness. They're an expression of rebellion against him. We, let's, just reduce it. let's just reduce it to some of the Ten Commandments. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. God has said those things, as Lord, he has said those things are off limits. They're an offense. They're a reproach. So, so to that person who's unsaved, I want you to understand that we are making a distinction between things God has not said are lawful or unlawful and things God has said are unlawful. Regarding the things God says are unlawful, we will preach without, without reservation, you should not be committing adultery. You should not be committing adultery. You should not be lying. But that's not what our text is saying, okay? So I want to make that distinction. I am telling our brothers and sisters who are walking in life with brothers and sisters, both doing worship of God, having their, their priorities straight, exalt God by not doing. Exalt God by doing. Not to become the judge over those things. I want to be clear. In Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will die. In Acts chapter 2, Peter continues to repeat what Jesus has said, and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, remember when I read from Colossians? That he might be the head of the church. Jesus is king over IBC. So we confess with each other this morning. We, we have a spoken theology. We are not the Lord of each other here. What's the second question? What does our judgment of other people say about our Lord? Okay, so the first question is, why has Jesus died in order to be the Lord of the living and the dead? So when we step in as the role of judge, what does it say about our Lord? Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why, why do you despise your brother? Because I, I saw playing cards in the junk drawer. Because I was, I was driving by the movie theater and I saw them attending. Why do you judge your brother? So again, I want to be clear. I said this at the very first sermon in, this, in these, these two chapters dealing with this. And in the very first sermon, I said we are not talking about being negligent to call sinners to repentance. Look, why do you pass judgment on your... Would you all say it out loud? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? In verse 4, your brother, who you think needs fixing, has been accepted by God. God is able to make him stand, in verse 4, even in his weakness. 
Now, let me suggest that when we are saying something about the Lord, when we become judges, we're honestly saying less about our brother and less about God and more about us. What I mean by that is this. This is present in me, and maybe you identify it in yourself. We come to conclusions that our way of doing things is better or the only way. And and admittedly, they're often conclusions that are shaped powerfully by past experience. But here he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As I thought about every person standing before the judgment seat of God. His holiness, his righteousness. God will sit on the throne and gaze into our secrets as a God who's too holy to look at sin. And I thought about the fool who stands in front of God. The Bible says that the fool says in his heart, no such thing. God doesn't exist. And I thought about the fool going, oh no. I convinced myself this wasn't real. I thought about the self-righteous. The person who has walked through life with an admission, maybe... Maybe an unwilling admission. Yeah, God exists. But I've done some things to make sure I'm going to be okay. Thought about the self-righteous person who says, standing in front of God, not a problem. I thought about the religious person. The person who has spent maybe their whole life building a false defense. And in a moment, it'll be burned up. We will all, all of us, will stand before the judgment seat of God. And I wonder if we would confess that reality and our need for Jesus while the day is still called today. So in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 and verse 15, We are told that when we hear the message that Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath of God because of our sin, he he forgives us from our unrighteous of our unrighteousness. If you hear that message, Jesus can save you from sin's damnation. If you hear that message and don't harden your heart, and while it is yet today, repent, you will be saved. So I wonder about my foolishness, about my self-righteousness, about my religiousness. If while it is yet today, I will say, I'm going to stand before God and I will only stand by Jesus Christ. He goes on to say this, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. That's a quote from Isaiah 45, 23, as I live. God swears it by himself. I want you to hear When we are told judgment is coming, God promised it was coming and said basically this, if I exist at all, you will give an account to me. 
as I live. If I don't live, then I'm lying. But if I live at all, then you and everyone you know and everyone you don't know and everyone who lives in a part of the world where Jesus is a stranger will stand before God. If he's alive, if God lives, it's going to happen. Hebrews 6.13 says, When God promised, when God says, I swear this is going to happen, there was nothing greater for him to swear by than himself. There was nothing greater, so he swore by himself. If God exists, the day is coming. When we will, what? Confess to God. Hmm. Confess to God. Boy, think about yourself standing before God and having to admit. (laughs) Admit what? Okay, every soul for all of time gets in line, stands before judgment seat of God and confesses the wrongs they've done. That's why it's eternity. That's going to be the longest line. But let me shorten the line up a little bit because this quote is from Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, we're told what we are going to confess. Isaiah 45, 24, the verse right after, we will confess to God. Isaiah 45, verse 24 says, we will confess that righteousness and strength belong to God alone. Every person will confess that. The word confess in the New Testament, in the the original language, means say the same. God says, righteousness and strength belong to me. And someday, the self-righteous, the fool, and the religious will stand and say, yes, that's true. Every one of us will give account for himself. But when we assume that we will stand or fall based on preferences, we are denying our faith that God alone is the righteous judge. When we say, fix your preferences, have more honorable opinions, we say, every soul will stand before God and give a resume of admirable opinions. That is not what we will confess. And honestly, to assume, to assume for a second that my brother or sister who chose to get a tattoo, dumbest tattoo I've ever heard of, A man got a tattoo, who I know, of the word duh, D-U-H, on the inside of his bottom lip. So that when he flipped his lip down, it said duh. All right, okay, okay. That's tempting for me to say, that's not going to pass the test. (laughs) Thou shalt not pass. (laughs) But when I have that, that moment of like, What? That can't be acceptable. 
It's because I'm pretending in delusion that what I'm going to confess is why I belong in heaven. Not confess all power and strength belongs to you. All righteousness, all holiness. I think this is the sort of concern Paul had in 1 Timothy 1.19. He, he told Timothy to teach the church, hold the faith in good conscience. Because some have abandoned the foundation of their faith and they've made their faith shipwreck. So as it applies to this text, imagine this. A person says, I think Christ alone is my salvation. And then they start walking in their newfound Christian faith and then say, oh, I wasn't even sure that that was a taboo. I should make sure I don't do that. Oh, I should also make sure I don't do that. Oh, I'm going to avoid that because that one sounds really bad. Hold the confession of your faith. Because when you get over here into your long list of taboos that you will not do, your faith is shipwrecked. And what sort of disciple makers are we? If, if we take it on ourselves to say, yes, this is a confession of your faith. But has anyone told you about? Christ is exclusively our righteousness. Therefore, in the confession of our faith, we will not deny that. Uh, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There's five verses, six verses there, where I think Paul is giving us a sort of motto to adopt for ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> This, this is good for us to hear him describe it. 1 Corinthians 4.1. This is how one should think about us, or your Bible may say regard us. This is how someone should think about us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is then required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I'm not even judging myself. None of us is there, right? None of us is there. None of us is putting so much merit in our atonement by Christ alone that we say, I'm not even second-guessing my own behavior. <laughs> but Paul says it. I don't even judge myself because I know someone else is. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am acquitted. The courtroom scares me. And I love when the gospel uses courtroom language. 
Like being falsely accused is a terrifying thing, isn't it? But when I read like justification and being acquitted, it is the Lord who judges me, the end of verse four. Verse five, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. There's a lot of differing opinions we have. What was the other one? What was it? Fortune cookies. Good job, Sierra. Fortune cookies. Anybody pull that piece of paper? I like fortune cookies. Uh, my family, not, not all of them do. I, I, you pull that piece of paper out. Does that, maybe you would say, I can't read that. I can't even look at it. I wad it up. I put it under my uneaten fried rice, and I can't even look at it. <laughs> and here's the thing, this text, what a wonderful delivery we've received. Like from, from spending a moment of the day. I wonder, if, I wonder if I need to have a conversation with my kids because my grandkids believe Santa is something. I wonder if I look at that fortune if I'm going to be denying the true revelation of God in Scripture. And we, we spend one moment thinking that. And this passage delivers us and says, wait, wait, wait. Stop wondering about that. Start confessing this. And that stuff is straightened out. Now, <clears throat> as a pastor, I think about the effect that this text and my preaching of it could have on people. So I said, stop worrying about the playing cards in the drawer. I don't know. I feel like I've got like three things and I keep beating a dead horse. But stop worrying about whatever that thing is for you. And look at Christ on the cross dying to be the confessed king of everything. See the Lord, holy in righteousness and splendid in glory, and know you're going to stand before him. And I feel pastorally like everyone might go home and throw the playing cards in the garbage. Like, Jesus is better. I'm going to stand before a holy judge, cards in the garbage just to be safe. And we could build a bunch of just to be safe, just to be safe. Just to be safe. Out of good motive. I want to honor my king. I don't want to accidentally dishonor him. I want to honor my king. Good intentions. Good intentions. Let me tell a story that I hope will pastorally help us. Imagine with me a far kingdom. Where there is a king who one day comes out with a proclamation to all of the citizens of his kingdom and says, by my decree, there will no longer be required of any of our citizens income tax or property taxes. There will no longer be any income or property taxes. And the citizens all say, yes, 
That is such exciting news. Did you hear what the king did? Oh, the king has done that for us. And then you go home and you think, well, wait. So last year, I had to pay in like four donkeys. And I only have three donkeys right now. Just in case, just to be safe, I should start setting some money aside for April 15th. And then April 15th comes, and you think, I didn't get a tax bill. I heard what the king said, but is he really going to be that benevolent? I'm just going to put what I paid last year into an envelope, not the donkeys. He sold the donkeys, got the money. I'm going to put it in an envelope, and I'm going to send it off to the castle. I won't say it's for my taxes. I'll just say it's a, a gift of appreciation for being a citizen in the kingdom. And the king, in all of his selfless benevolence, opens your envelope and sees your donation to him. Have you honored that king? So I understand sometimes out of just really unspeakable adoration, we might say, I just don't want to risk it. I want to honor him. And if we supplement his benevolence with our opinions, you're not honoring him. Now, I feel like I have to be clear and go all the way back to Romans 6. Should we go on sinning to honor the benevolent king? God forbid. That's not what we're talking about. God has spelled out the things that dishonor him. And we as his subjects, as, as citizens of his kingdom, honor those things. That's not what I'm talking about. But this broad category of opinions that we might commit ourselves to so that we don't accidentally violate the king. You can see the king, right? Opening that letter and knowing that somewhere in his kingdom was someone who chose to rest in their carefulness instead of his benevolence. Matthew 25, Jesus told a parable about some servants who had been given talents. And one of the servants went, okay, okay. And he, he took his talent, he put it tightly in his hand, buried it in the ground. And then when the master came back, he says, well, what have you done? Oh, he said, here's your talent. Whew. Oh, I, th I think I've escaped your wrath. It's been tough. I buried the talent in the ground because that servant says this, I knew you to be a hard master who I was afraid of. The benevolent king in his palace opens the letter and in the note it says, just to be safe because Jesus, I know you're a hard master who I should be afraid of. That's my warning to us. 
And I would just say this. I want to close quickly. In these things that are essential, in Romans 6, in the Ten Commandments, in these things that are essential, in our, in our doctrinal confession, the, the confession of our faith, who is Jesus? How do we say solus Christus, Christ alone? Well, because he's the eternal. He's divine. He is without sin. That's essential. You don't get to debate that. You don't get to have a varying opinion about that. In essentials, we strive for gospel purity. In non-essentials, unity. But in everything, we are the body of Christ. Living together in bonds of peace. In everything, unity. I'm sorry, charity. In everything, charity. I think this passage is a, is a wonderful gift from the gift giver that liberates us from having long debates about taboos for Christians and raises the conversation to look at the cross and the holiness of God and his provision, his benevolence, and our worshipful response. It's a worship issue. How do we worship? Let's pray. God, Father, you are awesome in glory. We're weak, and we want to imagine some responsibility we have to please you with things that you haven't instructed us in. Guard us by the confession of our faith, holding fast so that we not make shipwreck to make Christian faith about things that we don't touch, places we don't go, but rather to walk in subjection to your lordship and honor you as our all. And so we pray to you that you would do work from our soul out. In Jesus' name, amen.